civilizations. Dave, I am going to talk a lot today. Uh, this is a story of the Mexican-American War of Zachary Taylor, 
who we will hear about in the Mexican-American War. He commands uh, the U.S. Army against the Seminoles at the Battle of Lake Okeechobee. Um, this is like a big grinding war that goes from 1830 to 1842. There's also the Osage Indian War in 1837. There's the Texas Revolution, which is very fateful. So remember in um, our episodes on Bolivar and Miranda, we talked about the Mexican Revolution and how uh, at the end of the Mexican Revolution, they made an agreement with one guy named Steve Austin, I think was his name, or not Steve, anyway, something Austin, uh, to found Austin, Texas. And they allowed Americans to go and settle there because it was kind of far from their capital. Uh, so Americans started to settle there, and that's when they um, <laughs> eventually in 1836, they decided they wanted to have a revolution and become independent quickly after thereafter to join the U.S. Um, and Texas, also these Texas Americans fought a, ra- a bunch of um, Indian wars as well, uh, starting from that revol- so-called revolution. Um, in 1847, there's a war in the Cayuse War in Oregon. Uh, and there was actually a French invasion of Mexico in 1838. I don't know anything about it. Do you? Uh, I don't. I know about the one in 1850, 60. Okay. We'll talk about that one after. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, I looked. It turns out there was an invasion of, of Mexico by France in 1838, which I have not followed up on. So I that's that's just by way of expansionism. And I'm going to give you another uh, grim litany at the end of this story of all the expansionism uh, and all the wars against indigenous nations that took place after the Mexican-American War. But now on to the politics of the USA in the time. So uh, in that time, in, 18, in the 1840s, uh, there were elements of politics in the U.S. that may be familiar on the one hand and um, different. So one historian, Harry Watson, he said, the following. He said, when Republicans, and that means everybody, that doesn't just mean um, Republican Party the way you would understand it. Yeah, smaller. Yeah. When Republicans of that era quarreled with one another, they tended to regard their opponents as enemies of liberty itself, not as rival interests having equal claims to public favor. So I don't know if that sounds at all familiar in terms of today, but it certainly was like that back then. Um, there's also... Um, it's all a it's a very confusing again not necessarily something you can relate to today but it was a very confusing and indirect system that they used for elections so there were electors you didn't elect people to offices you elected electors the ballot was not secret it was a public uh, ballot and there were riots all the time uh, so, you know, there would be riots on election day and people would be bullied and beaten. People would show up with weapons to these elections of electors. So it is like today. <laughs> you know, I, this is a history show, Dave. Uh, we On this on civilizations, we take no position on uh, contemporary politics. Actually, I don't know if that's true at all. It's probably not. Um, so there were 1,200, in terms of the scale, there were 1,200 riots uh, between 1828 and 1861. And these riots include, you know, vigilantism against slaves, uh, lynchings, of course, um, anti uh, violence against abolitionists, which are, which is a small lobby, but 
very, very hated by uh, mainstream. Um, and of course, Indian Wars uh, and slavery, as I mentioned. There's also dueling. Um, so people who have watched the musical Hamilton uh, know about the Ten Dual Commandments, which uh, is a reference to the Ten Crack Commandments by uh, Biggie. But um, there's duels figure into that musical, and that's from 1776. But there are duels right into this period. So President Andrew Jackson, the Democratic president and probably biggest Indian War proponent, um, I'll mention him again soon. Um, he killed a rival in a duel. And you think of a duel as a way of settling matters between honorable gentlemen, but often these duels took look li- more like ambushes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it would just be, you just shoot somebody and be like, yes, I am satisfied now. <laughs> so uh, there's uh, there were there was even a shooting in Congress in the 1840s. There's often threats. There's often beatings. Um, the fact that there's dueling as an official thing means Congress also brings some of this in uh, into politics. So as I mentioned last episode, Jackson's thing is Jacksonian democracy, which is extending the franchise to all white men. And so this is... Uh, in the United States, where there's slavery and where there's expansion and indigenous genocide uh, going on, uh, the choice of franchise or the the specific nature of this franchise matters a lot. It's it's a big deal. Um, and so, and the two parties at this time are not uh, Democrats and Republicans. They're Democrats, which are the Southern planter, um, very much interested in slavery and in um, growing crops in southern countries with slaves as the basis of the economy. And then there are Whigs. And Whigs are more like your liberals in terms of economics. They want... um, Actually, the liberal doesn't really map onto this. Whigs are more in favor of an industrial policy. Um, They're more in favor of um, what you might call like the northern position of trying to build an industry and an industrial base tariffs tariffs exactly exactly so uh they want to protect infant industries to use at alexander hamilton's race again um so polk president polk who was the president at the time of this mexican-american war uh was a democrat and that matters for that will matter for various reasons okay so here we go Uh, The war. In 1845, uh, 4,000 troops uh, under Zachary Taylor set up in Corpus Christi, which is a town right on the border. Today, it's right on the border. Um, Back then, it was north of the border. Um, So they are learning formal battle battle tactics because they're not, um, that's not really how the U.S. fights its wars back then, as as we've talked about before. So In the 1810s, the U.S. had taken Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi, um, and immigrants from the U.S. had been moving into these territory, into the Mexican territories, um, especially Texas from the 1830s. And they would show up and they would want to have slavery. And Mexico does not have slavery, so this becomes a a conflict between the American settlers who want to be American and live under American slave laws. Uh, versus Mexico, which uh, doesn't have slavery and has a totally different view of race and racial 
um, yeah, and race period than than the than the Americans do at this time. So in Texas, they had defeated the Mexican army and become independent. And though there was a lot of um, the way that the w- the path for this war was prepared by the kind of war propaganda around the Texas war. So there was a lot of talk of the kind of Mexican atrocities, the Alamo, uh, which had taken place in this war, uh, you know, General Santa Ana is kind of like the, the big bad uh, villain of that time. So Polk's pretext for the war was that he was he was protecting independent Texas and his territorial ambitions were that he wanted California, uh, which was Mexico at the time, uh, part of Mexico at the time. And he wanted Texas uh, and he wanted the Rio Grande to be the new border, which obviously it's what the border is today. Um, If you uh, yeah, that's where they're building the wall. (laughs) So Polk, uh, Polk, this is what Polk wanted. And and ultimately, spoiler alert, this is what Polk ended up getting. Um, The other thing that happened over over time, over the course of like the Jacksonian transformation, if you like, uh, was it, when Mexico became independent, uh, the view, apparently, the kind of head, mainstream view in the U.S. was that Mexico was like a sister republic liberating itself from European colonialism like America had. So they were kind of well-wishers of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, but Gradually, over the next couple of decades, they came to the U.S. came to uh, think of Mexico as racial inferiors. So racism as like the organizing principle (laughs) for the U.S. uh, started to, um, let's say, uh, influence their views of Mexico as well. So especially the southern slaveholders who were moving into those territories uh, came to see and understand Mexicans as their inferiors. And Mexicans were really kind of surprised and, you know, disappointed, (laughs) let's say, uh, by this change in attitude. Um, And in some cases couldn't wrap their heads around it until the invasion, until they saw what what the Americans were doing in the the territories that they occupied. Back then, uh, the U.S. economy was three times the size of Mexico's. So the difference in wealth, in resources, uh, just in terms of the ability to feed uh, the troops, was basically, I mean, I would say the the biggest uh, difference in terms of who who won the war. Like, this is why the U.S. won the war. Um, today, in- interestingly, I-, I just looked it up. Today, the U.S. GDP is about 20 times the GDP of Mexico. So that disparity is actually bigger now than it was then. Although technologically, probably not. Um, okay. So in 1845, the nearest uh, garrison to uh, Corpus Christi uh, is the Matamoros garrison, which has 5,000 men. So the president of Mexico at the time, Herrera, he was worried because he actually had a good read on Polk. He knew that Polk wanted to take these territories from uh, Mexico. So he uh, appointed General Paredes, who who had orders to take 12,000 men to Monterrey. He wanted to uh, have a big show of force right on the border and say, like, if you invade now with this small force, you're going to be... 
um, defeated. Uh, but Paredes did not believe that this was a real threat. So he just didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't follow the order. He instead got ready nice and slowly at his own pace and decided he was going to take his troops and go and overthrow Herrera. So he marched to Mexico City instead and overthrew Herrera. So this is like from the from Mexican history, this is like opportunity number one to have not been defeated that was squandered by um, one of the generals. And there are a number of big recriminations, but this is the first one. So in 1846, Polk orders Taylor to cross and go uh, right, I mean, not to cross, but to go right up to the Rio Grande and set up camp across from Matamoros. He was expecting that that show of force on their side would just have Mexico capitulate. Um, The Mexicans actually had a range of analyses of what was what was going on, and they they believed that uh, the U.S. was on the verge of tearing itself apart. uh, politically, so they were not wrong in the sense of the Civil War, but they were wrong by about fifteen years. Um, and they were the Mexicans also looked back to the U.S. performance in eighteen twelve and thought, "Oh, that's they're not um, they're not anything to fear." But of course, this is the classic problem of preparing for the previous war, right? Mm. Um, so. There's the first battle. Okay, so Taylor blockades Matamoros and builds a fort. Uh, The U.S. Army actually... So there's a distinction in the U.S. Army at this time between regular troops who are generally hungry, abused um, from the lower classes and considered racially inferior. A lot lot of Irish, a lot of Germans, a lot of Catholics. Mm. And then the volunteers that are mobilized a little bit later in the war. And the volunteers are you know, more like the guys that fought the Indian Wars. So they're, you know, white um, militia types that uh, go deep into enemy territory and commit atrocities and are hard to control. And uh, and they are end up kind of taking over um, the U.S. military effort. So um, the first battle is at Palo Alto and... This is where one of the, I guess, patterns of the war is seen. American artillery becomes a really big deal. And American artillery is just better than Mexican artillery. They shoot farther. They do more damage. Um, they also have much more ammunition. So uh, they just, the Mexicans are are on the battlefield. Their commander's Arista, and he's hoping, he's just, he waits for a long time, hoping that the Americans are going to run out of cannon shot and they just don't. So (laughs) he tries a few attacks. uh, He gets repulsed and then he retreats. Um, So they retreat, they abandon Matamoros and they march south to Linares. So they, at that point, realize two things. The Americans are really coming, (laughs) one. And two, uh, the Americans have some pretty major advantages in terms of cannon artillery and logistics because they have so much more money and they can, you know, pay for food in a way that Mexican troops can't feed themselves in the field. So now Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who was famous from, for fighting against the Texan revolutionaries 
um, he overthrows uh, Paredes uh, in turn after Paredes overthrew Herrera. He was actually in exile in Cuba at the time. And uh, the U.S. Navy apparently allowed him to return by order of Polk because they figured if he was in charge, he would probably sign some deal with them. Um, so, uh, but he doesn't. <laughs> no, definitely doesn't for for quite uh, for years. But the U.S. then passes a bill. The U.S. also realizes that this is not going to be like a matter of uh, waving your sabers and getting them to sign over the territory. So they pass a bill raising 50,000 volunteers. So these are the citizen soldier types. Um, they are used, uh, you know, they're called up for the Indian wars They're um, they, and they are very touchy about their freedom, right? Because they believe in slavery for others and they believe very strongly as a result in freedom for themselves so they elect their officers uh, and they say things to uh, their officers like you better remember that we are not slaves on your plantation <laughs> um, officers themselves that are raising these volunteers are often aspiring politicians so they have a certain um, they feel a certain accountability to the their troops because their troops might be voting for them for public office when when the war is over uh but the troops are uh known for drinking uh around the world apparently at this time americans are known for being big drinkers um and i guess uh a few decades earlier it, whiskey was a currency in a lot of uh the u.s like literally they they would measure it out and pay for things in in whiskey mm -hmm. Um, so they're known for taking, they're also known for taking long trips away from their women folk, mainly also to do a lot of drinking. Um, they, they're also, yeah, they're, they're, when they win battles in Mexico, they do a lot of pillaging and plundering and rape. Um, General Winfield Scott, who actually becomes, uh, more important as the war goes on, he writes about this, uh, phenomenon to secretary of war william marcy he says murder robbery and rape on mothers and daughters in the presence of the tied up members of the families have been common all along the rio grande truly it would seem unchristian and cruel to let loose upon any people even savages such unbridled persons um uh the historian whose book i was reading i think his name's Guardino. He says, one of the striking things about these thefts is how well documented they are in memoirs and letters and how little they show up in the records generated by military trials. Dave, is this, are these patterns like representative of Napoleonic Wars? Or is this a more unique thing? Um, patterns of, you mean theft and yeah, rape and pillage after or during? No. Um, theft, yes. Uh, for example, when the French army swept across Italy, uh, they were bringing an end to feudalism. They were bringing, you know, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity. So in a sense, they're bringing freedom, and they were welcomed for that. But they very quickly wore out their welcome because they would steal uh, enough food and while we're stealing food what the heck let's steal whatever's not nailed down so they were considered thieves as well 
the officer's just as bad as the men. What's missing is the murder and rape, because had they done that, you would have had uh, the reaction that they got in Spain. In Spain, right. So uh, atrocity breeds atrocity. Which is what they, uh, which is what American uh, commentators started to say towards the end of the war, as you'll see. Yeah. They said, you know, we've generated another Spain here. More almost in those exact words. So Congress, uh, in order to motivate the troops, U.S. Congress passes an act granting Western lands to US military recruits in February of 1847. Um, and apparently volunteers were also motivated heavily by uh, history. I don't know if you know this book. I do. William, William H. Prescott, The History of the Conquest of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I haven't read it. I don't know much about it, but apparently it was a very motivational text for the Americans talking about how the Spanish, I guess, conquered Mexico from the Aztecs. Um, so volunteers were also told this typical story. The Mexicans were too lazy to make use of the land and territory. And that was part of the justification for taking it. Um, in fact, uh, the American officers had problems with these volunteers because uh, they didn't want to do things like carry <laughs> supplies around or, or you know, run wagons. Um, and, uh, and at times when they had to retreat from the Mexican army, these some of these volunteers would just burn supplies because they didn't want to do the work of, you know, servants or slaves loading supplies onto wagons. Um so uh, talk about people who don't want to work. But Zach Taylor moves into northern Mexico in 1846, and guerrilla warfare starts almost in pretty much right away. So there, Mexicans actually have a long, in this region, actually have a long history of kind of gr- low-intensity warfare between the Mexican uh, settlers, I guess you could say, and the Comanche indigenous people. So American pamphleteers, when they come, they say they're going to protect Mexicans from Comanches. That's why they're coming. Um, They're coming to help the Mexicans against these indigenous raids. But the volunteer Mexicans quickly realized that what the Comanches do is less than what the Americans do in terms of the atrocities that they commit. Uh, So Mexicans, guerrilla warfare is also very um, brutal. So they ambush American uh, volunteers. They display their dead bodies. Um, the Americans do that in turn. They burn whole villages and they conduct it like they did in the Indian War. So if if someone comes from a village, they'll go to the village and burn the whole village and kill everybody in the village because uh, they'll say you're all guilty for harboring guerrillas. So that's kind of like their counterinsurgency model. An example being Agua Nueva, where they massacred all the males in the village after the guerrillas from that village killed one soldier. So Taylor actually ordered, he got mad at them. He read a strongly worded statement about how they were dishonorable to the troops. And he said, I'm going to order you back all the way back to the Rio Grande. But then uh, stuff happened and he couldn't, they, they ended up staying on. So there's an interesting letter from General Mora y Villamil uh, who wrote to Taylor and he said, listen, we're going to follow your lead about whether the war will be in accordance with the law of nations and as it is prosecuted by civilized countries or instead 
as it is waged between savage tribes. Now, he's not, I know you might think that he's um, referring to indigenous people here, but uh, apparently he was referring to the Goths and the, um, you know, the, the, the tribes that, yeah, the sacked Rome. So that was kind of the analogy he was making. So Taylor, obviously, uh, instead of answering that question, he says, you are insulting me. <laughs> this is an insult to me and the government to which I have the honor to represent. And he presents the massacres as unfortunate exceptions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of exceptions going on. A lot of exceptional stuff. So Mexican forces continue to retreat. They retreat to Monterrey. Uh, Taylor arrives in September with 6,000 men and attacks um, the city. Uh, he has a commander, Worth, under him, and Worth manages to get into the city. There's house-to-house fighting. The Americans do like the they do the French army does in the Paris Commune. They're breaking walls down uh, and going from one house to another along the walls of the houses rather than fighting in the street. Um General Ampudia on the Mexican side basically kept retreating until he was in the center of town. And at that point, apparently they've got whatever gunpowder they have is in the center of town. All the civilians are in the center of town and the Americans are just bombarding freely. Um, so they were, there had been some big explosion in a previous war. I don't, I don't know if you know the reference, but they were really worried that the gunpowder would blow up and they would just all, there would be a big, you know, massive explosion that would kill everybody in the center of the city. So Ampudia was worried. He negotiated a withdrawal with Taylor and Taylor agreed because Taylor figured that Polk would want a negotiated end to the war. And he also, the house to house fighting was costing the U S a lot of casualties. You know, every house they take, they would lose casualties. So, they agreed uh, the Mexican forces were allowed to withdraw and there was a two month long ceasefire. Um, so the Mexican troops arrived in San Luis Potosi in a state of nudity, hunger and misery, according to General Santa Ana, who had just arrived there himself. So they were totally demoralized, uh, hungry and miserable, and they had just lost every engagement they had fought. And this actually <laughs> trend continues for the rest of the war. Um Taylor then occupies uh, the town of Saltillo and waits. Santa Ana fortifies the town of San Luis Potosi uh, to get ready for an attack. He's hoping that Taylor is going to cross the desert the way his troop, the way Mexican troops had to, because the northern there's a big northern desert between Monterrey and San Luis Potosi, or between Saltillo, if you want. And so Santa Ana figured that if Taylor marched across that desert, his troops would be in as bad shape as the Mexican troops had been when they got there. And then he'd be in a great position uh, to, to defeat them because he'd be in a defensive position. He would outnumber them and they would have just marched across the desert, but uh, feeding all of his troops, uh, Santa Ana's troops strained finances, not least because the U S had blockaded Mexico's Navy I mean, blockaded Mexico's ports, uh, denying a lot of the revenue to the government. Like a lot of Mexico's revenue came from customs revenue from the ports. And Taylor actually did something very clever. He also recognized that crossing the desert would be a disaster. So he decided to attack by sea. 
So he starts ferrying his troops over south, way south to Veracruz. And then Saltillo now has to decide whether he should, um, while the ferrying is going on, should he cross the desert and try to fight Taylor in Saltillo? Or should he um, try to meet Taylor in Veracruz? And it happened to be the worst winter in northern Mexico in decades. So uh, he decides to go meet him in Veracruz. He decides the, the southern route not to cross the desert. Um, and they fight another battle in February. Uh, February 22nd, it's the Battle of Angostura. Santa Ana has the numbers, but they're very tired uh, after marching to meet Taylor down there. Um, and their weapons are inferior. On the second day, um, his men are so hungry and thirsty that Santa Ana withdraws to Agua Nueva to let his men eat and drink something. By then, uh, Americans, 300 Americans have died, uh, 400 wounded, 600 Mexicans have died with 1,000 wounded and 2,000 fled, mostly to be reunited later. So the provisions problem is just insurmountable. So even though the fight had been a bit of a stalemate in Angostura, uh, Santa Ana had to retreat because of the food problem. So he retreats back to Potosí, um, and then the financial disaster just continues to tell. Um, and the worst moment of the war for Mexico is the so-called Polcos Rebellion. The Polcos are so named because of President Polk. So they're accused of being treasonous. The Mexican um, National Guard, one group within the National Guard, wants to use church wealth to fund the defense. So the government in January had passed a, a law mortgaging or selling church property uh, in January. And then, uh, but another group of National Guardsmen defended the church. So they actually started fighting in the street, not like big fights with lots of casualties, but they're fighting on the street um, in Mexico over, um, over funds, over church revenues. So that means the government just doesn't have any additional money or troops to send to Veracruz to defend against the Americans. Um, so Santa Ana comes back south. The Congress basically backs off. There's a compromise. So the church gives a little bit of money um, and the Congress backs off and they all head to back to Veracruz. Um, the accusation was that the defenders of the church were working for the Americans. And there was an American journalist, Moses Beach, who gave money to the Polkos and claimed later to have been the mastermind of the whole Polkos rebellion. So who knows? Maybe they deserve the name Polkos. Um, so General Winfield Scott uh, was in charge of the Veracruz invasion, and he bombards Veracruz. Um, the shells are explosive, and Mexico discovers that this type of shell is not stone fortifications are of no value against this shelling. I think this is also something that you're going to talk about in the Crimean War, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they had all these stone fortifications, which had been good against previous generations of guns, but weren't there no good against uh, American guns. Uh, Mexican artillery just can't match up again. Uh, so again, they asked Scott if they could evacuate foreigners and non-combatants but scott figured this is working really well um 
so Scott knew that uh, this uh, bombardment of civilians was actually very effective for m- American military goals. So uh, after 600 civilians died in this bombardment and 350 soldiers, the Mexicans surrender. This is uh, kind of no. Noto- this is kind of um, disapproved of even in the you know European or Western world. So the Times of London calls the bombardment of Veracruz one of the most atrocious and barbarous acts committed in modern times by the forces of a civilized nation. So this was a this was a whatever morally costly thing that Scott did, but it they won Veracruz by doing it. So. Uh, so Santa Ana tries to meet Scott's forces in a big long march, 600 miles in seven weeks. The first 200 miles are in the desert. He marches, uh, he meets them at Cerro Gordo for a battle. Uh, there's 9,000, uh, troops on each side and Scott wins again. So Santa Ana, uh, is often assessed as like a pretty good logistician in terms of an organizer, in terms of working with what he what he's got. But as a tactician, he doesn't match up to Scott or Taylor um, in the war. Basically, every time they fight a battle, he loses it. Um, he tries to fight them again at Puebla. No answer to their artillery. So Scott walks into Puebla and um, he just kind of takes it easy for a couple of months. Why does Scott stop and pause for two months? Partly to deal with the politics in the U.S. So there's a lot of opposition to the war and it's building because they're trying to figure out what Polk is really doing here. You, uh, you know, th- he presented it as like protecting Texas interests, uh, marching to the Rio Grande. But then he's now he's ferried a giant army into Veracruz and he's marching on Mexico City. Uh, and if you look at a map of where Mexico City is relative to the U.S. border, you can see this was a uh, pretty big, um, pretty big. You're you're pretty deep. Mexico City is is in the center, the ge- the you know geographic geometric center of the country almost. Um, so abolitionists opposed the war, and they were saying that it was just a war to get more lands to have more slaves. But Whigs were also worried. So. Um, Polk was saying, look, if you, our troops are in the field, if you don't support the war, that means you don't support the troops. Again, totally, uh, totally the kind of argument that contemporaries can't possibly understand. Right. Mm. Um, uh, but some Whigs, uh, you know, they said, okay, fine, we'll participate in the war, but we oppose it in principle. And then there were others that were just saying, no, we don't buy this. And we encourage Americans to desert. And a lot of Americans did desert, especially the regular troops. Um, and there was a uh, concern about morality. So, you know, Henry David Thoreau, right? The famous uh, guy who lived in a little cabin in Walden and wrote about nature. He also wrote a book on civil disobedience about this war. And his buddy, I guess, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, visited him in jail. And there's this famous exchange where Emerson said, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau said, that's the wrong question. The question is, what are you doing out there? Because if you uh, had any principles, you should be in jail too. Um, So in fall 1846, the Whigs won a majority in the House. And there was a young young parliamentarian, a young congressman named uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) 
who uh, disputed Polk's claim that Mexico started the war. Hmm. And there were also other, so other Whigs, there's a famous speech by a Senator Corwin uh, on February 11th, 1847. And he says, each chapter we write in Mexican blood may close the volume of our history as a free people. So they were really concerned about like what America was becoming. Um, and uh, <laughs> Corwin has this great line because a lot of the expansionists were, especially interested in California and they looked at San Francisco and they said, San Francisco is such a great port, you know, in terms of like its access to the Pacific. And, you know, it's just, it's just geographically so well suited to being a port that we should have it. And Corwin says, (laughs) as a, he's a criminal lawyer by trade before he was a Senator. He says, uh, he has never yet heard a thief arraigned for stealing a horse plead that it was the best horse he could find. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Corwin also predicted that if uh, we win this war with Mexico, it'll lead to a civil war within the U.S. So, pretty, uh, pretty prescient. There was a guy named Henry Clay from Kentucky. Uh, and there's a cure. It's a. It's worth. This speech is November thirteenth, eighteen forty seven. Whose his son had died at the Battle of La Angostura, and he he says this is a war of aggression, but then it's and there's abolitionism, but then there's also a a different kind of racist argument for not doing it. So they're they're increasingly concerned that if we conquer Mexico, we're actually adding racial inferiors to the U.S. Hmm. <laughs> so the expansionist argument is limited somewhat by the problem that you're then going to have to assimilate all these people that you don't consider your racial equals. It sounds like the Germans in Frankfurt arguing over whether we want all of those Slavs in the Habsburg Empire. And that's the, around the same time, right? Exactly the same time. Yeah. yeah so they're all reading each other's books and stuff. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so the Mexicans were really hopeful that this kind of um, this kind of division would help to their advantage, but it really didn't uh, very much. So um, there are some things that did help, like U.S. volunteer forces decided to just go home when their enlistments expired. So their their kind of their kind of belief in their freedom was, you know, good and bad, I guess, in terms of military performance. So Scott. Um, had to wait in Puebla for more men to come, more volunteers to come, because there were guys leaving. So he had to wait for more soldiers to arrive. In in Puebla, Mexicans were enraged by, again, like especially the rape, the sexual violations. Um, the author of this history, Peter Guardino, he says, writers in the aggressive country have rarely been quite so open about their interest in sexual conquest as they were in the Mexican-American War. Um, so Mexicans started to write that this Anglo-Saxon race is trying to exterminate the Mexican race. Um, and they're also uh, like there are also anti-war kind of voices in the U.S. that are starting to get concerned about what American volunteers are becoming or doing by committing all these atrocities in, in Mexico. Um, Governor Adame of San Luis de Potosí compared Mexicans to Greek fighters against the Ottomans uh, and also to uh, people fighting the British invasion of 1807. So that's like the nature of the Mexican propaganda. They're looking back and comparing America to the Ottomans um, and themselves to the Greeks. We've talked about that. I guess, are we going to talk about that again or have we already? We already talked about that a bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so Scott is starting to worry about the guerrilla war. Um, so he, uh, just like you said, Dave, he he's worried that the more atrocities that you create, the more uh, guerrilla war is likely. So he actually does discipline his troops and try to prevent atrocities. And he's trying to get uh, Santa Ana to, to a battle uh, so that he can defeat the 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 army and get a deal. Um, so he's actually go- doing things like going to Catholic mass in Veracruz, um, but the atrocities keep coming and the, Ma- the guerrilla war keeps coming. So uh, there's a famous guerrilla leader named Celedonio de Jarauta. There are lots of others, but that's a name that comes up. Um, Scott waits in for 10 weeks for recruits and then 10,000 men depart from Puebla on uh in 1847, there's five weeks of fighting before he takes Mexico City. And Santa Ana is a good organizer, but he's not as good of a tactician. He gets he gets 20,000 men together, um, and he's trying to figure out how to defend Mexico City. Um, Mexico City is a huge city, and there's so many approaches, and none of these approaches are protected from U.S. artillery. It's just too good. And they're dependent on outside food, so Mexico is vulnerable to siege. Um, Americans send a representative named Nicholas Trist, and he tells the Mexican government that if the Mexican, if they re- contest and they fight inside the city, he won't be able to control the troops and they will re- loot and rape and kill in the city. So Santa Ana is a little freaked out about that too. So he pl- makes a plan to fight a battle outside the city and he makes a decent plan. He's, he's going to use the lakes because Mexico city historically is surrounded by lakes. And at this time, not all of them are, uh, filled in. He has volunteers break the dikes so they're bigger reservoirs of water, and then he fortifies the approaches that are remained. So it's a campaign in what's called the Valley of Mexico campaign. But um, he puts a general named Valencia in charge, a commander named Valencia in charge, and that's Valencia is locally in charge of the approach that Scott ended up choosing to to enter Mexico City. Valencia does not follow Santa Ana's orders um, again. So this is another big bitter moment for Mexico. He doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't follow orders because he doesn't like Santa Ana. So he sets himself up to get surrounded. He gets surrounded. Santa Ana comes a little bit late, tries to reform the line and mount another defense at the convent of Churubusco. Uh, So they cover, they do a decent defense. They cover the retreat of the army. um, And that's, uh, this is the story of the Linos Heroes. You've probably heard of them. Um, Mexico, in in Mexico, they're famous. Oh, is this here? No, this is the San Patricios. These are all, (laughs) sorry, these are not the Niños Heroes. That's later. Um, these are the San Patricios. The San Patricios are uh, American deserters, mostly of Irish St. <laughs> Patrick, mm-hmm. uh, Irish descent, uh, Catholics. And there's several hundred of them. And they are the ones who cover the army, re- the Mexican army's retreat. And they get overrun. 60% of them are killed or captured. Um, at the court martial, they claim that they were just helping the Mexicans because they were uh, starving. And they end up getting hanged uh, en masse. 16 of them are hanged on in September 10th and 29 more on September 13th. Their faces are branded with a D for deserter. 
and they're made to wear iron collars with spikes. The remaining ones that live are released in June 1848. So Scott and Santa Ana agree to an armistice to negotiate. Um, you, there's, a, there's a younger general there, or a younger co- commander there, an artillery commander named Ulysses Grant, mentioned in our uh, <laughs> statues episode. Uh, he was there. Robert E. Lee was also there. Um, they, they were both... Uh, Grant note, wrote home that he was impressed with Mexican defenses. So Scott attacks again. There's a battle on September 8th, uh, the Battle of Molino del Rey. So Mexicans did... Um, they tried to nullify the American advantage by lying in wait until Americans come into range. They didn't, they were attacking from ambush and they hit them at close range, follow up with a charge that's repelled. But Mexicans uh, had to withdraw and they lost cannons and casualties. Um, again, uh, there's a jet, there's a Mexican commander that refused Santa Ana's orders. So there's a famous moment where Santa Ana strips his <clears throat> insignia off and slaps him with his insignia after the battle. So by this point, the Mexican army is just like spent. They're starving. They're, they've never won a battle, really. They're totally dis, dis, disorganized. Um, the next attack is uh, Chapultepec Hill, which is now very close to the city. There's a withering artillery bombardment. And this is where the Niños Héroes um, died. They were fighting on the like on the steps of this house, the Chapultepec residence. Uh, and they, uh, so these are these young soldiers that, you know, died fighting basically to the last man. Santa Ana withdraws again and uh, the Americans in- enter the city and start the bombardment. The Mexican army retreats again. Many soldiers desert and the city council basically offers to surrender if there's no, if Scott can guarantee that there won't be a massacre. So Scott basically says, uh, I'll try. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, but Mexican, the Mexican citizens, the citizens of the city are not happy to be occupied. And so there's street fighting. Uh, there's street fighting for two days and there's bombard. The bombardment does end up happening. They bombard buildings. They massacre civilians. Um, and this is a city of 150,000 people. And they're resisting. Scott actually goes to the palace and tries to make a speech to the troops and the Mexicans uh, <laughs> or Mexican women yell basically Callate gordo, like shut up fatty. Cause he's, was a bigger, bigger sized man. Um, so Scott, uh, he tells the council that he'll sack the city if resistance doesn't stop and city council, the Mexican city council says that's not them. It's not, they're not, responsible so they leaflet people telling them to stand down but that actually angers the people even more um so scott threatens churches uh the church authorities tell people to stand down too but ultimately the repression kind of works so the city does quiet down after a week or two but it quiets down uh in terms of like city uprising type resistance but there's still constant ambushes and people you know slitting americans throats in back alleys and that kind of stuff continues to happen so santa ana tries to cut the americans retreat off and attack them in puebla but it just um he's just desertion due to hunger just constantly messes up all his plans his army's basically finished and he goes into exile with American permission in March 1848. Um, 
so he's not remembered uh, fondly in Mexico for this. Uh, Diego Rivera, the famous Mexican poet who's, I mean, poet, painter, whose uh, paintings are on the National Palace now, he has a pic- picture of Santa Ana handing General Winfield Scott the keys to the city. Uh, so they're not happy with what Santa Ana did. I don't know if it was... I didn't get that impression that Santa Ana was uh, selling Mexico out, but it was... It would. I can't see... I can't see too many paths to victory for Mexico on this one. Um, so the guerrilla war continues. Scott's atrocities, U.S. atrocities against civilians continue. The Texas Rangers come. So when the Texas Ranger... Uh, when the Texas Rangers arrive, you know that atrocities are going to step up, as we again mentioned in our statues episode, including Walker, Texas Ranger, who I think was that's the name of a show, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was actually killed <clears throat> during while he was looting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's rape and burning of villages, massacres of, vi- of villagers and children. Um, so in the end, Mexico gives up a whole bunch of territory. Co- California, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada. Um, and and in the... Um, and so this is all in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, on February 2nd, 1848. So that makes the Rio Grande the boundary, the Rio Grande the boundary. Um, Texas and the other territories become a part of America as they're, they put conditions that are not ultimately respected, but they put conditions that Mexican property and their right to stay on in the American territories and become American citizens is guaranteed. So that's ratified in March. Obviously, these rights are later trampled. Um, so the American occupation goes on for some time. There's a celebration planned for um, for when the Americans withdraw, which is um, set for June. Yeah, June 1848. And on that day, the government actually arranged an alcohol ban um, for the day the Americans departed. So there wouldn't be too much celebration. Um, and some Americans wanted to stay on and try to con- keep up that uh, Texas, California idea of settling different parts of Mexico. But it's too divisive to pursue. So the racists don't like it, and neither do the Whigs. And the guerrilla wars are also a wake-up call. So Scott actually says, um, you know, if we should withdraw our troops, it cannot be doubted that Mexico would again relapse into a permanent state of revolution. So they recognize that um, trying to go on and occupy and take over the rest of Mexico will just embroil them in more or less permanent kind of guerrilla warfare. So they opt against that, although there were people who wanted to do that. Uh, and then the withdrawal begins, June 1848. So the consequences include um, the U.S. is now on the fast track to civil war because of these lands and the debates over whether slavery would take place in these lands. Um, characters like Lee and Grant are both veterans of this war. Um, and there are abolitionists and pacifists mobilizing um, against this war. Uh, and ultimately, again, the, it, it was the huge disparity in resources uh, that, uh, that really kind of made the difference on this. Um, any other consequences you want to point out, Dave? Well, it's interesting to consider this in the context of manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah, which is a phrase, I think it's attrib- attributed to Polk, but I don't think it was Polk. Yeah. Yeah, a bit like the German 
Großdeutsche and Kleine Deutsche. There are some Manifest Destiny believers who think that Mexico City should be the capital of the United States of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, that's not popular in all quarters. I was interested too in the uh, number of officers who were disobeying Santa Ana. Yeah. Is, yeah, that is comes up over and over. Personal or political? It's yeah, I think it's like um, you know, the the way Guardino puts it is, you know, there's a, there's just a different kind of system in the sense that ambitious generals eventually have political ambitions uh-huh. in a way that the Americans don't really or they do. The Americans do, but they the American politicians do it through the election and there's so many coups um in Mexico. So yeah. That was, I think that was a big part of it was like, you're maneuvering, you're always thinking of the next coup. Yeah. Uh, Can I go to uh, Juarez here? Yeah, let's do that. Because these, if these uh, officers who are disobeying Santa Ana is is political, it might just be like the foreshadowing of what happens in Mexico in the 1850s, Mm -hmm. where the contest is between conservatives and liberals. So yes. the conservatives, of course, are pro-church, uh, law and order types, and you know, big landed estates. And the liberals are looking for an extension of the vote, and well, you know, the, the typical causes that we've been talking about for the past several episodes. And uh, I guess I go to yeah, 1858. So there was a moderate liberal president, Ignacio Comonfort. And he was forced to resign by the conservatives who dominated the assembly. And yet that ended up backfiring because the head of the Supreme Court stepped in and took over as president. And this was Benito Juarez. He was born in 1806, a poor rural family. He was of indigenous origin, uh, orphaned, fairly young, uh, went to the city and went to school. He was very fortunate to find a Franciscan who was willing to help him get educated uh, at a seminary. He became a lawyer, uh, then a judge, uh, married into a prominent family, and eventually became head of the Supreme Court. So when the president was forced out, Juarez you know, followed the Constitution and took over as president. He's the first indigenous president of Mexico. Well, for the conservatives, this is unacceptable. That's not why we kicked out the previous president to get another liberal, especially not an indigenous one. So this started a civil war, the war of the reform. So, I mean, interesting that so soon after losing to the Americans, the Mexicans are are ready to fight each other, which is a story we've seen elsewhere. Um, So as this war, the war of the reform is going on, France, Spain, and Britain decided to invade Mexico in 1861. This was because the government had suspended repayment of debts. So basically, the European countries are showing up as debt collectors to pressure the Mexicans to to keep paying on their debt. Uh, A year later, Spain and Britain both withdrew. I don't know if it's because they succeeded in recovering the money or whether they were just worried about their partners ambitions because France wasn't just there for the debt. This is Napoleon III and he had ambitions. So the French army stayed and Napoleon thought, I can turn this country into a monarchy. I can uh, use the conservatives 
and their support and I can bring in a, I don't know, somebody, I'll look around. And he eventually invited Maximilian von Habsburg. This is the younger brother of Franz Joseph of Austria. Uh, I don't think that he's related to Napoleon III, but Napoleon figured that I can handle this guy. So he invited him to become emperor of Mexico. Uh, at first, Maximilian wasn't interested, but then with renewed appeals, he got the impression that the Mexican people were inviting him to come and be their ruler. And if this sounds really strange, well, think of Belgium, you know, with their German king. And uh, it's happened elsewhere. Greece, you know, we need a king or an emperor. And we'll go shopping for uh, somebody with a good uh, pedigree. And Habsburg, well, there you go. So Maximilian von Habsburg goes to Mexico to be installed as emperor by the French army and by a, a group of Mexican conservatives. And uh, I, I don't think either side or either party was really happy with the deal. Maximilian thought he was going to be a popular ruler and found out that you know it was just a small group of conservatives who were backing him. Uh, the people weren't all that thrilled when he showed up. Uh, meanwhile, the conservatives found out that Maximilian had some fairly liberal ideas. In fact, he upheld several of the liberal reforms that Juarez had introduced. So, oh, no. Yeah. So Juarez is still president, uh, refuses to submit. He's retreated to areas beyond the control of the French army. So the war goes on. And, well, uh, the Americans are supporting Juarez. They recognize him as uh, president. But at the time, they're not ready to intervene. It's 1864-65, and the American Civil War is still going. Is, that, is Lincoln the president? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Maximilian is supported only by the French army, uh, unable to bring Juarez uh, to terms. He offered him an amnesty, and he even offered to make him prime minister if Juarez would you know, swear an oath of loyalty to Maximilian as emperor. And Juarez refused. By 1865, though, the American Civil War is coming to an end. The Americans have a massive uh, trained army and more weapons than you can shake a stick at, and that changes things dramatically. So the U.S. begins to put diplomatic pressure on France while simultaneously supplying arms to Juarez. Here's the fine tradition of <laughs> America lending weapons. Uh, uh, yeah, this uh, this is this seems right. This strikes me as righteous, though. I gotta say. Uh, yeah, but the method was funny. Rather than simply give Juarez weapons, the Americans claimed that they had lost them, <laughs> or, or they or they shipped large quantities of weapons to arms depot that were. Right on I the hate, Mexican border, and then I hate when that run. happens. <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, we had these weapons stored right on the border, and somehow somebody neglected to guard them. So Juarez's men just came over, collected the weapons, and thank you. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure what would have happened in this civil war. It was really decided by Napoleon III of France. He was having troubles at home. His government was a little less popular. And he was facing uh, the rising threat of Prussia, which I think we'll get to in another episode. So he withdrew his army, brought them back to France. 
And without the French army, Maximilian didn't have very much Mexican support. So he was uh, captured after a brave defense. He refused to abandon the people loyal to him. He was captured. Uh, they put him on trial, and he was sentenced to death. Uh, there was an Austrian nobleman who had been there supporting him, Felix Salmsalm, and uh, Felix organized a plot to help Maximilian escape from prison. Now, the plot depended on Maximilian uh, not being recognized, so they were going to shave his beard, and apparently that was what stopped it. Maximilian uh, refused to go along with the plan because if he would been uh, if he was recaptured without a beard he would, a beard he would have been too ashamed which makes me think of Louis the 16th and the flight to Varennes and his yeah, <laughs> escape plan oh my gosh saints preserve me from ever being involved in a rescue plot to save yeah. some aristocrat <laughs> Maximilian was We're probably safe from that. Well, who knows? You never know. Uh, Maximilian was executed uh, June 19th, 1867. And historians still can't quite agree on what the guy was. Uh, was he a liberal, a reformer? Uh, I mean, he was, he was personally brave, uh, not very able politically, rather short-sighted. Uh, foolish to have accepted the offer in the first place? Who knows? Yeah. And, I, and I always wondered uh, whether this was the period where uh, Zorro was set, because if you've Zorro. if you've yeah. seen any, if you've read any stories or seen seen any movies, the uh, troops that he's you know fighting or escaping from wear uniforms that look suspiciously French, right? Blue coats, and so I wondered if if Zorro was set in this period, but uh, not. Not quite. Uh, apparently, yeah. Zorro was the invention of an American uh, pulp writer named Johnston Macaulay, who wrote a story called The Curse of Capistrano in 1919. Mm -hmm. The basic details are the same as you know most of the films. Uh, it's California, though, right? That's it's right. All about it's California. in uh, Los Angeles, uh, somewhere between 1769 and 1821. But also interesting was that like a year after the story, there was a movie starring Douglas Fairbanks, the first uh, screen portrayal of Zorro. Wow. Not yeah. The last. Uh, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, for me, Zorro will always be Antonio Banderas, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Cal Calif yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the, the book I read about the Mexican American war, they, he points out, the author points out that California was a place uh, in this time, in the 1820s, 30s, uh, where y y people were simultaneously Mexican and Californian, and people are no, no, no. It, people were simultaneously Mexican and American. Like it was possible to those were not incompatible like identities to yeah. have. So it's interesting. It's very different now. So the last thing I wanted to do was just give you like a litany, a rundown of the expansionism of the u.s after the mexican-american war and i one day i might like i have a, a life ambition to read at least one book about each one of these wars the american indian wars and maybe even do a pot we should maybe do a we, that's another series we could do dave we could just do a podcast just one one episode per war um 
So there's the Apache Wars, 1849 to 1924, the Navajo Wars, 1849 to 1866, the Yuma War, 1850 to 1853 in California, the Utah Wars, 1850 to 1923 in Colorado, the Sioux Wars, 1854 to 1891, the Rogue River Wars in Oregon, 1855 to 1856, the Yakima War, 1855 to 1858 in Washington, the Mojave War, 1858 to 59 in California, the Paiute War in Nevada in 1860, the Yavapai Wars in 1861 to 75, Arizona, the Snake War, 1864 to 1869 in Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, and California, the Wallapai War in Arizona, 1865 to 1870, the Modoc War, 1872 to 1873 in California and Oregon, the Nez Pierce War, 1877, the Bannock War, 1878, the Crow War, 1887 in Montana, where they were trying to break out of the reservation and were forced to back on, the Bannock Uprising in Wyoming, which was very small in 1895, the Yaqui Uprising in 1896, the Battle of Sugar Point in 1898 in Minnesota, the Crazy Snake Rebellion of 1909, which was also small in Oklahoma, to which most many of these Indian nations were de- had been deported already. The Battle of Kelly Creek, otherwise known as the Last Massacre in 1911 in Nevada, which was really a kind of a big police operation where they were shooting uh, a shootout with a single family of indigenous people, Shoshone family named the Daggetts. And the last of the Indian Wars, uh, the Battle of Bear Valley in 1988, a skirmish with the Yaqui in Arizona again. Mm. So uh, just like for me, the number and the scale of these wars was kind of surprising. I mean, I, I like I, I did. I mean, like it shouldn't be right. Like how how did how did the U.S. end up being the U.S.? Like, of course, this was how. But yeah, at the same time, not a surprise. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that I've only heard of about a third of them. Yeah, and but the, yeah. the continuity of the dates, they have like seven or eight going on at once. Yes, exactly. And, and there's rarely a time when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And almost all of them end with that. And then they deported them to Oklahoma. And they deported the survivors, yeah. And then they deported the survivors, yeah. So that's... um. That's what was going on during the uh, revolutions in Europe. And now we're going back to Europe. Uh, briefly. It's a, it's a military debacle, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're doing the Crimean War next. See you all.